0: To face
1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 627 of the Survival Podcast. It's Friday, March 18th, 2011. Hope nobody's too uh, hungover from green beers, and uh, hope everybody's ready for a great call show today. i got about 12 of your calls lined up. Remember, if you want to be on a show like this, Pick up your phone and mash some numbers. Those numbers are 866-65-THINK. In order to get your call on the air, speak into the phone. Speak clearly and loudly. Do not make phone calls from flying airplanes or open windows and trucks doing 120 miles an hour down the highway or from the back of rapidly accelerating ninja motorcycles using weed eaters or whatever the hell some of you people are doing when you make phone calls to me. Do not turn your head away from the phone like this so that your voice fades out or I can't hear half of your call and I can't put you on the air. Do those things and make your question directed to the point like the ones you hear today and you'll end up on the air probably about a week or two after you make your call. These calls are pre-recorded and uh, I screen them weekly and set them up to get them on the air. We do these shows every Friday and I'd love to hear from you. All right, uh, before we go ahead and take your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Fortress Self-Defense Consultants. I want some of you guys out there... Uh, that have been buying lots of guns but little training and consider getting in touch with Fortress Self-Defense and Frank Sharp Jr. up there and his cadre of instructors. Uh, consider either going in for training or setting up a small group and having them come to you to do training at your location or one of your local ranges. Frank is uh, rapidly becoming a really good friend to the show. I love his overall statement. What is the best way to avoid getting yourself into a deadly conflict? We don't go to stupid places with stupid people and do stupid things. That's the straightforward, straight-shooting, no-nonsense type of training philosophy you'll get with Fortress Self-Defense Consultants, so please check them out. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. I love Safe Castle because they have everything I need for my prepping. They've also been a really great sponsor for a really long time. They've been with the show since the beginning. They were our first real official sponsor of the show. Uh, That's going back almost two and a half years now and uh, they also have an amazing discount buyers club it's $29 uh, for one time and you get discounts forever and uh, big discounts from them and guess what if you're part of the member support brigade you get that discount membership for free I think that's pretty cool. Next up, please consider connecting with us with all our social media outlets. Chiefly, those are YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And you'll find banners to link to our Facebook, our Twitter, and our YouTube at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Best place to go to connect with our sponsors or find our other ways to connect with us. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Last night, I actually did a two-hour interview with uh, Rifleman Radio, the Appleseed Project, with Michael uh, Adam over there, also known as Scout. And it was a great interview, and I did a special for the MSB on that show. 30 bucks for your first year. The discount code is 1022, like Ruger 1022, so it's 1022. Uh, I set that discount up so it won't expire till the end of today, so that's about midnight tonight. Uh, since I did it for them last night, I'll do it for you today. I'm not putting it on the blog. I'm not putting it on Facebook. Just an announcement in today's show. For those of you that listen daily and have been looking for a discount for the members brigade, might be a good way to do it. And remember, if you get that Safe Castle membership worth 29 bucks, that alone makes your first year a buck. I can't do much better than that for you. Uh, with that, we are ready to go ahead and start taking your calls. Let's go ahead and take that first call.
0: Jack, in your podcast today, you mentioned uh, EMP shielding with Faraday cages. Um, you did emphasize proper grounding, but um, I've done a lot of research on that, and grounding can be a problem for many buildings and houses. Uh, what is considered ground may not be adequate uh, for an EMP uh, shielding because uh, the grounding wires themselves will induce um, EMP uh, voltages into the shield itself so the most important thing is that the inside uh, electronics be shielded from the case in any in any event and um, also for small enclosures I've found that uh, many experts uh, don't require to say that shielding is not uh, grounding is not required for shielding uh, for small objects thank you.
1: Well, I brought that on as a, uh, just basically to let a listener tell you what their thoughts are on this and what they've learned from their research. I, I have to tell you, I'm not an expert on EMP protection. I am not an expert on Faraday cages. And I've heard Faraday cages do have to be grounded, don't have to be grounded. Sometimes grounding is worse than not grounding. Little ones don't have to be grounded like we're hearing here, but big ones do. I'm really not sure because there's a lot of conflicting information out there. If anybody actually has practical hands-on experience in not just creating these things but testing them, I, I'd like to hear from you and possibly get you on the air. Somebody with maybe an electrical engineering degree or something like that that's dealt with uh, high-frequency stuff or what have you on a EMP protection show. I'd love to get you on. Um, other than that, I think that we are, you know, basically I, I agree with the caller from the research I've done. Smaller objects and smaller cages can get by without shielding, I without grounding, I'm sorry, not shielding, but without grounding. I don't really understand that, but I've I've read that enough to believe it's probably true. Also, with having a ground and not it actually being a ground, that's definitely possible, Um, but it is something that's fairly easy to test if you uh, know what you're doing with something as simple as a multimeter. Um, And with that, I'm just going to let that one go. I don't have a lot of additional comments on it, but if anybody out there uh, is uh, an electrical engineer or has direct hands-on experience with building and testing uh, EMP shielding devices, uh, I would love to have you on the air and talk about the difference between the threats as well of things like a man-made EMP due to a high atmospheric nuclear burst versus, uh, uh, you know, intense solar flare activity from our sun. Like to, uh, love to get somebody on the air to talk about that. Uh, send me an email, jack at com. We'll see what we can do. Uh, let's go ahead and take the next call.
2: Hey, Jack, this is Bill from Northern New Jersey. A few shows ago, I heard you talking about, um, apple trees and how they're grown uh, by being spliced onto different sized root balls. Uh, my mom has a trunk from a tree that was cut down in her backyard and uh, it's recently started sprouting branches back out of it. I was wondering if it would be possible to actually be able to splice uh, apple trees into that. And then also can you do uh, for trees that need multiple sexes to pollinate and bear fruit, can you do That with uh, the different sects of the trees into the same trunk base, Uh, and also could you do different varieties of fruit? I don't know if any of this is possible. I saw it to try and look into it, but I couldn't really find anything. Thanks, bye bye.
1: It's one of those things where you're not far off, you're close, but you're not quite on either. First of all. To answer your question of whether you could splice anything into the existing uh, infrastructure, root infrastructure that you have uh going on there with your mother's tree, I have to know what kind of tree it is. And the odds are it's not an apple tree or you wouldn't cut it down. So let's say she had a uh um, you know, a black ash there and you want to splice apple into that, or the proper term isn't splice but graft. Um, no. It's not gonna work. Uh, maybe somebody did it somewhere and it did work. If so, let me know. But I mean, basically, you need to be using trees of the same variety. That doesn't mean the same exact uh, variety, but the same species. So you want to graft apple, you need to be grafting it to apple stock. If you want to graft, uh, you know, uh, plums and nectarines, they can uh, and, and peach can often uh, work with with similar stock. But you're not gonna graft them onto an apple and things like that. So, what you're talking about using, let's start out with the first one. Using exists, so you have this big root system. Um, odds are no, because you've probably cut it off to the ground and what you have are little ca- coppicing, uh, uh, return coming up. Now, if it was an apple tree and you let one of those, those shoots regrow and form its own new trunk, trimmed out the rest and let it start to become a little, its own little tree, And it was an apple, then you could probably splice some different apple varieties onto it. Uh, again, graft is the right term. I don't know why I'm saying splice, but, uh, you you would, you could, you could do that. What people have done very, very successfully, for instance, is have land and start going through that land and find that on that land is wild crab apple. And that crab apple root system is extremely, extremely durable. And, uh, it's extremely well adapted because it's a native tree. And then they go ahead and they cut a graft into some of the branching uh, parts of the what you would call the scaffold level of the tree. So you've got your trunk that comes up, and you have your first place where maybe four or five good-sized branches come out and start to form that pyramidal shape of the tree. And one of those branches you go and you notch that branch, a very specific way that you do this, by the way, and then you take your stalk for, your, say, your dogo apple, okay, and you cut a, a matching piece to that graph, and you plug those two together, and you wrap that up and you, you coat it with some wax, and eventually that fuses together, and then that dogo apple is growing straight out of that that crab apple stock so i 've got now hardy root. Uh, well adapted, and yet now I'm growing. I'm using the existing, already infrastructure, so to speak, to grow apples. Yes, you can do that. Um, as far as growing multiple uh, varieties on one stock, there's commercial trees that do that. You can get basically, you know, an apple tree that grows four or five varieties of apples. And for people that don't have a lot of space, that only maybe can grow one tree. It will help with some of the things you're asking about. With like, male It's not really a male-female thing, but most apples are not self-fertile. So if you had a whole grove of Red Delicious apples, you're not going to get very good pollination. You would need another variety that blooms about the same time to get good cross-pollination. So one of these multi-variety apple trees, or a couple of them, are a great way to get that cross-pollination in. The only tree I'm thinking of that's immediately springing to mind that's a male-female tree is a ginkgo. And most people actually don't want those nuts because if you don't use them all, there's tons of them and they stink. Um but I don't see any reason why you wouldn't be able to get ginkgo stock and is uh, the tree formed, you know, if you had a female tree graft several male branches onto it, uh it it should work. There's no reason that shouldn't work, but I can't say that it's ever been done or that anybody wants to it. The, the important thing though to understand with this with this grafting technique is it's not something that's done willy-nilly, and I'm not real, real familiar with it, but there are proper times of the year to do it, there's proper procedure, a lot of nurseries and all do classes on it, and what you're seeing your tree do, throwing up these new shoots, is actually one of the ways that uh, they get stock for grafting. So you get something like a Red Delicious apple, or a, a Dogo apple, or an Oshman's Kernel apple, or what have you, and you let the tree grow to a certain size, and you just whack it at the ground, and you heavily mulch it, and then next spring, tons of these little shoots come up. And you cut one of those little shoots off, and then you get your rootstock that you're going to graft it to, and you graft that little shoot to that rootstock, you grow it out a little bit, and you sell it to the general public, and that's how we get most of our trees. So it's more like grafting a limb to a rootstock. Than you, you're not really going to go graft to a giant trunk you've left of a tree in the ground. That's not going to work well for you, but... The uh, the concept of grafting onto existing trees. The Bullock brothers up in the northwest on their farm, they've done apples to crab apple that way quite a bit. Uh, I was just up at my location in Arkansas and noticed that we have about five really beautiful, uh, moderately sized native crab apples on our property. And I'm going to be doing that. I'll be making videos of how to do that because it's almost, if you have that available to you, it's almost insane not to. You could do that also for things like, you know, we have native black cherry. Uh, in North America, we have these black cherry trees. They grow huge. Uh, they're very, very hardy trees. They grow these little bitty kind of sour cherries that, you know, have medicinal use. So you can make, you know, wine or or beer out of them or something, but they're not really good for fresh eating. They're not very sweet and they're very small. So they have a low, um, fruit to pit ratio. But boy, you know, you take a bing cherry or some type of a sour cherry and you graft a few branches and then you've got that great big established native root system. Now, you're still going to have a tree that grows really large unless you keep it down by pruning, and you can only do so much with that. But anything like that can be done. Any type of a native tree of the same species, uh, generally, grafts will take and grow out for you. Uh, great question. Let's go ahead and take another one.
3: Hi, Jack. This is Rational Husker from the forum. I called in a couple weeks ago with a question about getting a Ph.D., and, and you answered that question on the air, and, and thank you. I very much appreciated that. Kind of a related question is, uh, this is going to be about a three- or four-year endeavor. We're currently in a home in a mid-sized, small to mid-sized town, but it's a fair distance away from where I'll actually be going to school taking classes. And I'm not sure how to handle this. Uh, The idea of renting bothers me a little bit, but getting closer to campus would certainly save on gas, and gas is going nowhere but up, obviously, not to mention the time issue. So I could take several approaches, uh, either rent, uh, in the, in the college town, or perhaps just do the commuting thing and homestead, uh, you know, I've got a good start on a garden and things like that where we're at or possibly uh, look to rent a farmhouse or possibly even uh, look for the right home to buy, even though knowing uh, we may be relocating again three or four or five years down the road, uh, though there is also the possibility that there would be full-time employment uh, in the same area, so we may not have to move. So just got all these uh, competing issues, and, and trying to make a decision on what to do about housing is, is um, tripping me up a little bit. So if you could speak to that a little bit.
1: Okay, well you got really a lot going that. on there and I, I, it's hard to me address your specific situation. It's probably better that I uh, address this question in a more general way that applies to everybody that might find themselves in a similar situation. I'm gonna be a little bit specific to you. I'm gonna assume you own a place now you already have a place you own because of the comments you made. You didn't specifically say that, but it's based on, you know, we have a garden and we. we I could just start commuting, and you're concerned about renting. Uh, if you were already renting, you probably wouldn't be as concerned, and maybe you wouldn't be as established. So... Uh, I also don't know how long your commute is, but this is what you need to do when you're in this type of scenario. Doesn't matter if it's college, doesn't matter if it's a military, don't ma- doesn't matter if it's a—it's just a choice that we're going to do something and work a job for the next five years, and then we're going to move. You need to turn this, the problem into a math problem instead of an emotional problem, and then you need to back into the math problem your wants and desires and things like that that are emotionally driven but you need to start out with it as a mathematical problem so the first question you have to ask yourself is is selling our existing property feasible and if so how much would we take out of it when we sold it? So, The first thing you probably want to do, so you have an answer to that question, is get one or two decent real estate agents in and do a, a, a fair market appraisal of the property. If we list this property with you, what would you list it at? And based on your understanding of the current market, how long would you expect that it would take to sell? And if I told you I wanted to cut that time in half, how far would I have to drop the price? And if they can't answer those questions, call a different real estate agent because they're not worth your time to talk to. So that's the first thing. What can I do with what I have and how much do I get if I do that? How long will it take and how much flux will it put our lives in? Then the next thing you have to ask yourself is what are rents going for close to the place that I would end up moving to? So how much money is that going to cost me, and how much money will that save me over where I am now in making a house payment? And then you say to yourself, self, how much is this going to save me in gas? And you take that number and you base it on pretty much current prices, and you don't say, well, I think gas is going to go up or down. That's the best you can do in the most. And you know, gas is not a dollar right now. There's not some artificial low. If something had just pushed gas down to a dollar nineteen a gallon, I'd say bet on it being 3 bucks again soon. So, you, you figure that out. Cause I, you're not gonna save as much in gas as you think you are. You're really not. Gas is expensive as it is. Unless you're driving something to get seven miles to the gallon. Cutting ten miles off a commute. Um, that's what, a hundred miles a week. If you get twenty miles to the gallon, that's five gallons of gas at three bucks. It's, uh, fifteen dollars. <laughs> okay. So that's sixty bucks a month. And it's not, that's, making a lifestyle change for $60 unless you're always out of money at the end of the month isn't something I do. So, if it's, if it's, if, you know, if it's 50 miles of commuting, then we start to get a whole different scenario. We do put our time in there. How much is your time worth to you? And we have to make this a very calculated decision on mathematics and cost assessments. What will be the value of your property in four years? You don't know. Or five years, you don't know. So you're holding an asset that could appreciate or depreciate. You have to start looking at, when you're in short-term living situations, I like to look at home ownership like stock ownership. I want to do everything I can to mitigate my risk because it's a short-term hold. I'm not trying to make a bunch of money. That's trading. I'm trying to provide myself and need my home. And I'm trying to ensure my underlying asset, my equity, and taking the stock or not the uh, stock, but the uh, tax deductions and things like that. So it depends on how stable housing prices are in your market. If they've stable, if they've been pretty stable through what just happened, they're really stable. You're probably in a good position. And over the next four years, barring the complete end of the world as we know it, your property will probably appreciate somewhat in value. Um, so. These are all these things that you have to take into consideration. You just have to make a decision for yourself. I'm not freaking Yoda, in the words of uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. I can't tell you what to do with your life. But I can tell you that if I'm going to make that decision, those are the things that I'm going to think about, and that's the way I'm going to analyze any financial or living decision that I have to make. I'm going to take the numbers, I'm going to calculate, and I'm going to run the numbers, and then after I have a feeling based on the numbers, then I'm going to bring the emotional quotient in what screws most people up in making decisions about their lives is they start with the emotion and then justify it with numbers that's absolutely backwards start with numbers and then rationalize emotion to the numbers and you're going to think much more clearly and you probably already know the answer you just need to think about it that way to find it let's go ahead and take another call
3: hey jack this is uh, bobo on the forums i just wanted to call and tell you a quick story uh, my wife recently locked herself out of the house. She wasn't able to get in, and her kids were locked inside the car. So she had to get into the house, and uh, with very easily, she got a hammer and she was able to break right through the front door. I was really surprised because was dead bolted. When I looked at the door, uh, I noticed that the the the, the dead bolt was not set up properly. It uh, didn't have four inch screws in there. And anyway, the reason I'm calling is just to you know kind of say, hey, you know, you should really check out to see how your door bolts are mounted. Uh, inside the hinges of your house or else it could appear to be stable and secure, but it's really not. Uh, so <laughs> there you go. Uh, anyway, thanks for the show.
1: Anybody that feels really safe because they have locks on their doors needs to uh, tool on over to my buddy Brian Black's website, ITS Tactical, and check out all of his videos on lock picking. And, you know, Never mind even if you have the four-inch screws like you're supposed to, which is a very, very good tip. Uh, by the way, I'm not putting the tip down from the collar at all, but, uh, Brian can get into just about anything in a matter of maybe 10 to 20 minutes maximum and then leave and you won't even know he was there until you'd, you know, if he was a dishonest guy until you saw stuff missing. Uh, recently I lost the keys to a trailer hitch for, uh, it was a safety pin, uh, the the one that actually holds the receiver hitch or the pinnel hitch uh, on my uh, F-350. And I couldn't find the keys for it. It's a very complicated lock to pick because it's a small key in a small keyway. And uh, Brian actually has a video up on his YouTube channel we just shot with the iPhone while he did it. And, uh, it is, it, you know, it took him about 10 minutes, but he got into the lock and he got it off for me and saved me a call to a, a locksmith and all it cost me was a cup of coffee to get him to come over here and do it. So uh, I thought it was a fair exchange. And then, you know, kind of on that note, I, I, I've decided that I want to learn more about, uh, you know, what, what Brian calls lock sport. Uh, because it does have, you know, relevant everyday, um, activity. So it's a new skill set that I want to pick up. But when it comes to, uh, things like making sure your door hardware is properly installed and all, I, I couldn't agree more, but I'm going to still tell you this. The average door that the average American has is about two or three swift kicks from being opened. It really is. And I, I don't care what you do with it, because we're still talking about wood, metal, and, and, and fasteners. And uh the the reality is that locks keep out honest people and slow down and make noise problems for dishonest people. Um so it, it's something that we need to think about and of course if you have more locks you have more time and you have more annoyance and you're more likely to send a bad guy elsewhere. Uh so really great tip from the caller Uh, But I think that one thing we need to uh, to not over rely on is locks as a security method. They are a uh, if locks were foolproof, you wouldn't need a gun in your home. I mean, and I also look at people. You know, I have great locks on my door, right? But they're all locks that can be opened from the inside, which they should be. These people that I know, people that have like you need a key to open the lock from the inside. I think that's stupid. That's a great way to burn to death in the middle of the night. But, you know, most locks, obviously, from the inside, you just turn them and open them. Uh, well, they have this great door with all these great locks. They have, like, three locks and a chain, and, you know, but the door has a window. You know, one of those windows with, like, you know, ten little mini windows, and, you know, all you got to do is break one of the little windows out, stick your hand through, and undo all the locks and get right in, as though a guy that's going to steal your stuff isn't going to break your your window. And, and most houses have windows, so even if there's not a window on your door, all I got to do is break a window and I can open up the latches on your window and walk right in. And you think that makes a lot of noise, but there's ways to do it where it won't make a lot of noise. Roll a duct tape and a hammer is uh, one way to get that glass out of there. There's always a way in. So don't feel overly secure, and then don't be overly. I know some people now are gonna be like, "Man, my I mean, I'm gonna put bars on my windows and stuff like that." You know, um, there's there's a, a again there's a kind of a balance that we have to live in. Uh, but making sure your door hardware is properly installed, good tip. Thanks for that one. Let's go ahead and take another call.
2: Jack, this is Bill in Central Texas. I love your podcast, man. I have a question for you. Uh, I've been amending the soil in my garden, and I've noticed I am lousy with grubs. I know milky spore is supposed to knock them out, but what I'm reading says that it takes a couple years to do it. Uh, I need to get them killed so that I can put my stuff in the ground, but I don't want to poison the ground against the wigglers that I plan on putting in there next week. Sure would appreciate any advice you have on that. Thank you, sir.
4: Bye-bye.
1: Well, let's start out with the Milky Spore solution. If you, um, if if it takes a couple of years to completely knock them out, then the time to put it down is now, right? So if you're really worried about them I and Milky, Milky Spore is the solution you want to try, get on with it. it doesn't cost much. You might as well throw it down. Um, I can tell you that I've had them in my garden, and I have a, uh, you know, two very different experiences with this type of a of a creature. These beetle grubs. I'm sure you're talking about the larger ones. Real easy to see, guys. Um, they got into my lawn really bad one year in Pennsylvania, and they basically killed our lawn. And they killed a lot of lawns up there. It was like a like a you know like a plague of these things. But I've had them turn up in my garden a lot, and they've never actually caused any problems. And I, I don't know if it's that the, the the roots that they like to feed on are uh, more of a grass root variety or what. But pretty much my approach to controlling them has been that as I'm digging and making transplants or whatever, if I find some or turn, you know, doing some turnover soil with a trowel or what have you, or, you know, I've taken like some old mulch off to go compost and I just kind of turn that in with a big shovel, uh, or or what have you. And I see them, I pick them up and I throw them as hard as I can against my fence and they pop like little, little, you know, bug bombs and, uh, the robins or whatever come by and eat them. And they just never caused a problem. I've not had them cause problems for corn or beans or tomato or anything. And anything that I've grown I've had problems with, like the tomato with blight, I don't attribute it to them. And um, about two years of seeing them, they just kind of stopped showing up. I don't know if I threw enough of them against the fence, or maybe they are more of a grassroot feeder, and since there's not a lot of grass there, uh, they've gone off to other places. Or maybe they're just hanging out in the garden, and they, they have little burrows. I don't know what it is, but they haven't been that big of a problem. So I would plant and uh, keep doing all the things to bring in predators uh, you know, good companion planting, lots of flowers, lots of herbs and things like that. And I wouldn't sweat them too much. If you want to throw a little milky spore down, go ahead. If you really want to get rid of them, bring some chickens in. You know, and before you plant, throw a chicken tractor or a small mini chicken coop over your bed and leave the chickens in there for two or three days. And uh, they'll manure, they'll turn, and they'll eat the heck out of those things. And if you don't want chickens permanently... If you have a friend somewhere with a few chickens, ask them if you can borrow them for a week. I mean, that would be another solution. And that, I mean, for a lot of people that don't really want to take care of chickens long term... That might be something you might look into. Is is there somebody in the neighborhood that keeps a, a small flock? Would he be willing to loan you three or four birds a couple times a year? Uh, maybe in exchange for when you harvest a bag of tomatoes. It's bartering for chicken services. Never really thought of it, but uh, they would put a big time damper. Now, will they eat some of your earthworms and wigglers and things like that? Sure, um, but you know, it's, they're not going to eliminate them. Grubs run kind of a life cycle that's far different uh, than something like red worms. Red worms are constantly shedding eggs. So there's constantly tiny baby you know worms, there's constantly adult worms, there's constantly egg cases in the soil like all through the year other than the, the super coldest part or super driest part of the year. They're active in reproducing. Grubs kind of run like a, a major cycle. The previous generation lays the eggs by the time you see big grubs. They're all big grubs. There are no little ones. Uh, So, as as they're eliminated, their population is drastically reduced. But again, I have had problems with them in my lawn. And I have had them destroy lawns, and I've seen them destroy other lawns. I have not seen them cause any real damage to any vegetables, even root crops. I haven't even seen them, like, you know, eat carrot or anything like that. So,. I don't know. Maybe they're just not a problem within a garden. If anybody's had any different or confirming experiences, please uh, make comments today. And today's show notes, again, for episode 627 is today's uh, episode. And those of you guys that have comments on episodes, again, please remember, the best way to do that is go to the survivalpodcast.com and do it in the comments section. If you want to remain anonymous, make up a fake name. Call yourself John Doe for all I care. Um, But if your comments are there, I can address them publicly and everybody can learn from them. Uh, If you send me an email, again, I get four to six hundred a day. Relevant, real emails, four to six hundred a day. So I may not even get a chance to read it for weeks. And when I do, I might just breeze over it and not remember what was going on. Comments on the blog, I see them as they come in. I do my best to read and respond to as many of them as possible. Let's go ahead and take another call. Uh, Actually, one more thing I should probably say. Increasing the population just through good soil management, or by direct introduction of beneficial nematodes, uh, are really going to help control grubs as well. Because those little things are just like little grub parasites, man. They're little tiny worms that just infiltrate the soft wall body of those grubs and just eat them from the inside out. So that's another thing uh, that you can do. Let's go ahead and uh, now take that next call.
4: Hey, Jack. Uh, my name is James from Indiana. I got a quick question for you about starting seeds. Um, Last year, I had the problem that you described so often of not giving the seeds enough light and getting these thin, white, <coughs> uh, super, you know, thin stalks, and then it would just fall over dead. Uh, this year, doubled the amount of light and increased the amount of hours of <laughs> 15 <laughs> hours of light now on full different UV bulbs. Um, they're not, you know, super thin and, and willowy, but they are still growing pretty quickly vertically. I mean, they get really tall really fast, and it seems like you described before that your plants should be short and stocky and uh you know uh, i'm just worried that they're still not getting enough light i'm trying to figure out how to determine when they're getting enough light i mean i've got what look to be good healthy stems but they are very tall um thanks jack for all that you do i appreciate uh hopefully i'll hear this on the show but i appreciate you whether you do that or not thanks bye
1: well, it sounds like you've somewhat mitigated your problem and whether you've done it enough to uh, to get good, healthy seedlings or not, only time will tell if you leave everything the way that it is. I mean, I want you to think about this. The reason that, that those unhealthy, spindly seedlings grow so fast is they're not getting enough light, so they race to the light, they expend all their energy before they can do enough photosynthetic process uh, to provide themselves with additional energy and provide for new growth. They become spent and they fall over, uh, and they die. But when we send two people through a desert, may come one may come out the other side, um, very very weakened and alive, and maybe or maybe not be saved, and the other one may die somewhere along the way. So with with seedlings and light and water and heat and all the things that we need to provide them, it kind of works the same way. Sometimes we're getting them a little, you know, maybe if we send that guy through the the the, the desert with uh, four quarts of water, he would have made it out the other side instead of falling over dead, but he'd still really be in bad shape, where if we had sent him with four gallons of water on his trek, he could have made it and been relatively healthy at the end. And if we had given him an air-conditioned car and four gallons of water and a full gas tank, well, he could have drove through there in about an hour and never broken a sweat. And we want to get our seedlings as close as we can to the air-conditioned car, right? In other words, make it as easy for them as possible without making it too easy because eventually they got to go out in the real world and live in the garden and be chewed on by pests and deal with heat and deal with dry periods. so we want to create this cocoon of safety and slowly remove it so that they can adapt it sounds to me like you probably still need some more lighting and i think the best thing we can do for our seedlings is as soon as it's physically possible let's get them out in the sun and let's get them out where they get sun all the time. So let's pick that tray up and let's move it out somewhere where they're going to get some sun. Let's put them out in a cold frame or a greenhouse or under a, a tree that's not fully got its leaves on yet, with some mottled sun uh, coming through there or what have you. But let's get them in the sun when we can, because the artificial lights are only going to take us so far. Another thing you can try though, if like you're up in a northern climate, you still can't do that yet or what have you, or you can only do it for a couple hours a day and you want to get more out of your existing lights, get them closer to the plants. Raise the tray up or bring the lights down. The closer you get the light when you're using artificial light to your plants, the better the results that you're going to have. Good, healthy seedlings are kind of stocky. you know, They're kind of chubby looking in, in, in a way. They start to grow out. They don't just grow up. Unless it's something that grows straight up. If, it's a, if you were starting corn, it's going to grow pretty vertical. But when you're looking at things like tomato plants and all, if you can get some, some girth on the stem and you can get some robustness to the plant, um, they're going to they're gonna do much better for you. Another thing you do have to be aware of, though, you have a limit to how big your seedling is going to get, and that is how big is the container or soil cube or peat pot or whatever that seedling is in. If it's a relatively small space, it's going to reach a point where the root... Containment is going to begin to stunt the growth, and at that point, you either need to do what's called pot it up, or put it into a larger container, or better, if you can, with the environment and the weather, get it out in the garden. All right. So the the odds are that you've you've addressed the problem partially. You still need more light, and it may not be bring in more lighting. It may be get those lights closer to your seedlings uh, down to the point where they're almost touching. And uh, you may get a lot better results doing that. Uh, great question. Let's go ahead and take another one.
5: Hey, Jack. My name is Sarah. I am 50 years old. I'm in the middle of a divorce. And I have no property and only a car for debt. Uh, I am going to have half of my husband's 401K, which, to be honest, is about $40,000. And then I have about $10,000 in cash savings for myself. Um, I want to buy some property without being too proud about it, you know, to have something that I can raise some chickens and, you know, do my gardening and everything and become a little more self-sufficient. My problem is I don't know what to do with the 401k money. Should I use that? I know I'll lose about 30% of it, but should I lose... Use it to make a down payment or pay a good chunk of some property off, um, so I won't be in great debt. Or do I need to just sit on the four hundred one k money and have it invested? That's my question. Thank you very much, and I love your show. Bye bye.
1: My gut is one way or another; it's not immediate. It's a plan, and it's a one to two year plan to find the right place, take the time, uh, find a place you're gonna be comfortable living for, you know, what may be the rest of your life. You may be finding your little dream place right now, and it may be a little quarter acre city plot or something like that. You can do a lot with that, and you don't want too big of a place, uh, you know, uh, it's a lot of work for one person to take care of, uh, especially a single, a newly single female. So, uh, take your time and find the right place. Now, financing it, it, I mean, I can't answer the questions for you based on you know the fact that you're getting 40000 that's going to be in the form of a 401k. So basically, that's going to get split off and get rolled into an IRA. That's the way you're going to do that to avoid penalties on it. And it'll become your property. And at 40K, I'm going to assume that you're getting 40, that it's not 40 split, so you're not getting 20. Uh, it sounds like what you're doing. So you're talking about a total of 50 grand there, uh, that you have. And the thing is, you're 50, right? So you're somewhere between 15 to 25 years from retirement at the, you know, really the long end versus the short end there. Um, and for some people, you're 10 years from retirement. And, and you're going to have a hard time retiring with $50,000. If the stock market doubles, uh and you have it in index funds and it goes up and it's 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 worth eighty, you're gonna have a hard time retiring. So to get that money tax free you're looking at fifty nine and a half. So you're looking at a little little less than ten years before you could go access that money with no penalty. Do we take it to buy a home? I don't know. Do we take some of it to buy a home? I don't know, but it's a hell of a lot more likely than taking it all. First of all, the $10,000 you have saved, that needs to be considered your emergency fund. I'm not comfortable with you having much less than that in reserves. So that needs to stay in a good quality bank uh, in a good savings account, stay readily accessible to you in liquid. Uh, maybe you take $2,000 out of it in cash and put it in a, a fireproof box in your home, but you, you get the point. That is your emergency reserves. And, and if you take that and dump it all into a home, you got a problem because now you've got a home but no money. And if you take all of the 401k, uh, so it's 40, maybe you're going to get 30. Uh, Is about what you, I guess, you would end up with after taxes and penalties. Uh, you get thirty and, and and ten. You got fifty. It doesn't buy that much of a house. Uh, hell of a down payment. Very low payment. Uh, but it may be more along the lines of: Can you save another ten thousand over the next year? Uh, can you maybe go into that and only take half of it out? Continue to cre- contribute to your own retirement. And uh, then you've got, you know, let's say $30,000 for a down payment and you still have 10000 in reserves. The bank is going to be very uh, likely to issue you a mortgage at that, at that point because you've got a healthy down payment and you've got good reserves. Uh, so it's a lot about your income. You know, and uh, it's a divorce. Are you getting any kind of spousal support or alimony or anything like that? And don't take this the wrong way, but I think those two words should be stricken from the English language. When two people part, they part assets and it's over. Kids, you know, child support I get, but the alimony and uh, spousal support. So if someone can maintain their standard of living, I find it to be just an atrocity. Um, and I don't think it should exist. But if it's there, then you're going to have it, and you can use that. So without knowing your income, that's kind of the best advice I can give you. But my, my view is that when most people are in a flux like this, they want to do something quick, and I think it would make a lot more sense to find the most affordable place you can to rent, try to go as short with the lease as possible so that you can free up your options and begin hunting for that property. And when you find the right property and you find the price and the payments and where you want to live, then you can say, okay, well this is about what it's going to cost me to get what I'm looking for. You're going to be making a very informed, rational decision at that point, instead of, you know, kind of a life changing, life altering thing like you're in right now. Uh, if you have the dream place right now you found it you want it then you can you can make that decision for yourself and decide you know how much i want to pull out of it. I'm not comfortable liquidating that though i mean that's your big question do i just liquidate this and have a low house payment um what are you going to do for your retirement then is what i'm going to ask you how long are you going to work you know um, you know 50's not old but it's 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 not 20 uh it, it, you know 50 is 20 years away from 70 and and it, it is time to start thinking about, hey, what am I going to do for my future? And uh, if that's just some total of your retirement savings, man, I don't want you pulling that out of there. Uh, especially when you're only nine years, nine and a half years from being able to get it without those penalties. Uh, so I understand the desire for property. I endorse the the, 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 the concept of let's go get some property. Um, but it's going to come down to the cost and uh, your income. And you're going to have to make your decision based on that. And you're not going to swing a, a tremendous difference in a house payment with $20,000. You're really not. I mean, you're going to take 200 bucks off your payment at most, um, absolutely at most. You're looking at about $100 per, per, per $10,000 uh, uh, spent. So a $100,000 home, you're looking at roughly a $1,000 house payment. Now, I know that it's actually a lot less than that, but when you add... Average taxes, insurance, and things like that into a house payment, that's about what it comes down to. All right, let's go ahead and take another call.
2: Hey, Jack, this is AJ. I'm a cop with a small city department, and I wanted to kind of throw something positive at you. I've spent about the last three and a half years organizing community people with our department to for the purpose of uh, increasing realism of our training, but also, on the other hand, uh, getting to know some people that might be useful uh, to the population for um, assisting uh, law enforcement if there should be a uh, a need for it. Um, what I wanted to share with you, though, is uh, it has taken three years, and it. I've butted heads with everybody, both on my side of the table and on the public side of the table, but it's really starting to come to fruition, and a lot of people are waking up, and we've even been able to plow in some of the whole uh, prepper sustainability uh, conversation into some of our uh, some of our interactions, and largely, I attribute uh, my success in these conversations with the way you have worded. Uh, things uh, very non-offensively, very non-drastically, and I've completely plagiarized uh, some of your phrasing, and it's really helped me to uh, make a connection between our department and, uh, and the public, and I just wanted to tell you thank you very much, and I encourage you to continue uh, you know, pushing that we're all on the same page, we're all on the same side of the table, uh, we're all going forward into the future, because uh, it's working out good for me, and it's been very fulfilling and uh, I'm having a lot of fun with the people that are willing to help us. Uh, you have a great day, Jack. Thanks.
1: Well, I don't have a tremendous amount to say to that other than really cool. I'm glad to see law enforcement, at least some enlightened members of law enforcement, reaching out into our community and saying, hey, these people aren't what the... Uh, the, the think tank that, that, that wrote up the thing that says they're terrorists uh, say they are. They're, they're normal, good, patriotic Americans that believe that it's their own personal responsibility to ensure their own safety. And uh, when people start thinking that way, most of them generally think they're also out there to help others. And I'm sure it's been a difficult process. A lot of people that are of the prepper mentality and uh, the self-defense mentality are, are somewhat suspicious of law enforcement. And sometimes that revolves around one encounter with one jackass that doesn't belong wearing a badge. And uh, I can't say I've never met somebody like that, because uh, I have. But uh, the vast majority of people in law enforcement are there because, you know, it's, it's not a real high-paying, glorious position. It's a tough job uh, that, that involves dealing with a lot of people that don't understand how tough it is. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, that one jackass can make a lot of misery for people as well. And I know that's happened to other people as well. Um, but, you know, I try to look at the, the whole thing this way. This is American. We're Americans first. Uh, before I'm a salesperson, as I used to be in the corporate world, I'm, I'm an American. Before you're a police officer, you're an American. Before you're a, a farmer, you're an American. Before you're an auto worker, you're an American. That's what you are first. And that's the bridge that we need to build. And I think that um, having the concept of preparedness uh, it, return as an American ideal is, is really what my goal is. I don't think it should be, I don't think it should be as hard as it's been for you, but it's going to be, and it's going to be hard. And I, I hope other people out there in your position will do the same thing now. Um, but I look forward to a day where it's not so hard. I look forward to a day when, when people tune into the survival podcast and go, well, of course this is the way you're supposed to live. Uh, who is this guy? You know, I, I look forward to a day where I obsolete myself. You know, I I don't see it happening anytime soon, but really, I I don't understand to this day how we've drifted so far as a nation, and what I want to do is I want to push us back. I want to push us back to a point where, of course, law enforcement would reach out to the community for help in a disaster. Of course, the sheriff would put together a posse. Of course, there would be a county-level type of militia. Of course, there would. And, of course, those people would be one of the first people turned to by county officials in time of an emergency. Of course they would. Who could take better care of you than your own? You know, the problems that happened with law enforcement in Hurricane Katrina were from law enforcement officers that weren't from Louisiana and certainly weren't from uh, southern Louisiana. The people that were there taking care of their own, they knew local laws, and they didn't, they largely did not violate them. It was the federal inf- interference and the interstate interference that caused most of the confusion, problems, and things like disarming an old lady. That, that, that's what caused that. Your local militia, your local sheriff's posse, your local group of preppers that are just saying, hey, we'll help when we can, they're not gonna do that. Right? They're more likely to take an old, an old gun that they don't really need and put it in the hands of an old lady and say, things are dangerous. Here's how you, here's how you work this thing. You know, stay safe. That's, that's what we need. We need that cooperation. We need that bridge. So, all I can guess I can add to that is thank you for working hard to build that bridge. And anybody building bridges like that, you plagiarize me all you want. You won't hurt my feelings one bit. Let's go ahead and take another call.
0: Hey, Jack. This is Charlie Foxtrot from the Forum. Um, I'm calling because I'm thinking about caching a handgun. I've got a stainless steel 9mm sitting in the safe for 10 years, and I'd like to uh, cache it somewhere. i interested in your thoughts, whether Pelican case, PVC tube, silicone sock, what. Um, one of the things I like so much about TSP is the just the right amount of tinfoil hattery, but if the TSP has taught me anything, it's that redundancy is good. And having spent 20 years in the criminal justice system, it seems to me that there's an increasing trend that when the police show up, they, the first thing they do is take every, take all the firearms. So thank you for your thoughts, and I look forward to hearing them. Thanks.
1: Well, the one real long-term test where this was done, and, and 10 years later the guy dug it up that I know of was in Backwoods Home Magazine, and it was done inside PVC pipe, and it wasn't just... Uh, you know, put together with one of the screw caps or something like that. There was actually the end caps that you, 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 cap a line with, a cap of pressured water line with, were glued on there. So you had to actually cut the tube open, uh, when it was extracted. And it worked. So it's hard for me to recommend anything else when I know something that worked. Now there are PVC based tubes called barium tubes. Not barium like barium enema, but bury them, barium, barium like bury them and uh, they're available from, I think, a couple of our sponsors. Definitely uh, Safe Castle has them. I think ReadyMade has them. I'm pretty sure Sawtooth has them, and uh, they would work probably just as well. Now, with something like a handgun, some magazine, some some ammo for it, uh it's so small and so easy to do, I'd have a hard time saying, you know, anything other than, in addition to whatever you do, vacuum seal it. Good quality vacuum seal bag. Put that sucker in there. Turn on the Food Saver or the Commercial Vac or whatever you have and uh, vacuum seal it. And uh, vacuum seal your ammo, vacuum seal your magazines. And then put that into whatever container you're going to cache it in. There's a couple things I, I worry about with caching weapons, and I have to say them. And it doesn't mean don't do it. It means you have to think. And one is somebody finding them and getting their hands on them that shouldn't have them. I'm a huge believer in the Second Amendment. I am hugely in support of your right to own a firearm, and I believe that that is a God-given right, and it should never be taken from you, uh, and under any circumstances other than something like a felony conviction uh, for being violent with somebody else, or you've gone off to the you know, psychiatrist and said I'm thinking about killing a couple hundred people. And those kind of people, yeah, we should not, you know. But everybody else, you should have a gun if you want one, and I hope you want one. But I always talk about rights and responsibilities and how they're concurrent with each other. If you choose to exercise your right to own a firearm, you have a concurrent responsibility to ensure the safety of that firearm and ensure it doesn't get in the hands of a 12-year-old kid or a 17-year-old gangbanger. And when you cache that weapon and put it somewhere, you've effectively taken it out of your area of immediate control and it could be found. So you have to be really careful where you do this. So, an ideal location would be buried, in, let's say, if you had a place in your home with access to, to dirt underneath it. Um, you know, so it's actually contained by your home. Or if you had a locked shed and underneath that shed you had a trap door and could, that, I feel much more comfortable with that than you taking it out into a national park or forest or something like that and burying it, which I know a lot of people have done. And I, I, I have an issue with that. I, it concerns me. I understand the reasoning. Uh, the reasoning makes perfect sense, but in practice, it, it's it's a concern for me. I think it's something that's much better done on your own property or on other private property where you have permission and trust of a landowner or mutual trust uh, to do something like that. I also worry about what happens when you die. Does that thing just stay there forever? Is there some type of record or some other person that knows when Uncle Charlie kicks over, he's got a gun stashed XYZ, either I'm going to become responsible for it or I'm going to go get it and you know bring it back into society, so to speak. These are the things you have to clamp down. But sealed in PVC with PVC cement is a way that I know absolutely does work barium tubes i also know absolutely do work so i'm going to recommend one of those two ways and uh, even long guns you can vacuum seal and whatnot but definitely a handgun it's too damn easy not to do it i'd say why the hell not just vacuum seal it shove the vacuum sealed version in a second bag and vacuum seal it twice i mean that's going to cost you one extra bag so uh, maybe you take that approach as well uh, good question. Uh, good thoughts, and I guess I understand why somebody would want to do something like this. I also understand why some understand why somebody might want to get themselves a uh, a single shot fifty dollar used shotgun and a uh, high point C nine. And uh, in the event of an emergency where people violate the constitution like Katrina again, and uh, federal authorities or somebody shows up and says we want your guns, I go yeah here they are, and have other weapons properly cached in the home and hidden uh that makes sense too. And that may be the best use for a high point C9, even though they are kind of a fun gun to play with and a lot more durable and reliable than uh, a lot of people think, by the way. Uh let's go ahead take another call.
3: Hey Jack, this is Roswell from the forum. I just had a question about generators. Um I was wondering, is there a particular model that you think is quieter than others, or do you have, know any other methods to dampen the sound? I know like in a shit-hit-the-fan situation when we'd have to run the generators, but you'd still wouldn't want to attract notice, other than running it, uh, at minimal periods, what other ways would we accomplish that? Anyway, just want to get your thoughts on that subject. And thanks for doing all you do.
0: Alright.
1: Back. I'm not really versed enough on generators to start you know listing off models. I know there's a few that are marketed as quiet and they are quite a bit quieter, but they're still quite noisy when you get up into things capable you know when we get up into like the four, five six seven eight nine K uh, range any of them that are marketed as quiet there they're simply quieter than the competition. There's a lot of things you can do. Uh, one is you can you know basically install a muffler. You've got an exhaust point, you can clamp a, a lead onto that and bring it off and use, you know, a small car muffler. I've seen people do, so I've seen people use motorcycle mufflers, so. That's one way. What I can tell you we did in the military that was actually very effective at sound dampening. And we didn't do this really for OPSEC because we were, you know, big construction projects and things like that. Everybody knew we were there anyway. Uh, large, uh, you know, places when we were using, uh, generator sets. But, you know, sleeping while a generator is going out the door is kind of annoying. So what we would do is just basically surround the generator. Uh, with sandbags, so basically you'd have the generator into a, it's almost like putting it down into a pit, uh, but, it's, but the pit is being brought up around it, uh, many times we would actually dig a pit and put the generator down into the pit but not fully down there so you could easily access it to get your hands down there to give it fuel or basic maintenance or fire it up, turn it on, turn it off, uh, those are definitely ways that, you know, that'll help and then we went ahead and sandbagged up from there. And, uh, that was very, very effective. You could still hear it, but the sound dampening was very effective from the sandbag technique. From a practicality standpoint, probably the easiest thing to do is get yourself a small, you know, 1K to 1200 watt, uh, generator from like Honda or Yamaha. Those little things are expensive when you look at the watts per, you know, per dollar spent. Because you can go out and you can buy, you know, uh, 3500 watt generator, or even a 42 4800 watt peak generator, uh, for a few hundred bucks. And you might buy one of these little Hondas and and they might be four five six hundred dollars, but they're 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 quiet. I mean, you can almost not hear them running standing next to them. And Honda and Yamaha are the two, uh, that make really really quiet small generators. So that during a time where you need some power, now maybe you're not going to light the whole house up. But where you need some power and you need to be quiet, that'll help you a long way. And I like teaming small generators with battery backup systems because that lets me run the generator at a time when it's most um, or least dangerous, OPSEC wise, and least likely to attract attention. And even if I'm not really, like, let's say during the day. Everybody's awake. I have people, you know, that can take care of security issues. There's general noise going on in a disaster reconstruction, things like that. Anyway, nights when people like to sneak up, nights when that generator running is more likely to attract somebody. So even though I've got all my lighting from the sun during the day, I can have that little generator sitting there humming along, fully charge those batteries. And now I can use that battery system indoors with no exhaust and no concerns and everything in the house secured. During the night when I'm at the greatest security risk, so that's why I'm really a big fan of the small generator, large battery backup system. And with that, you can you can go pretty far with that. Um, that little 1200 watt generator may not run a lot straight, you know, as far as how much can run off it at one time. But for short periods, a, a battery system sitting there with uh, you know eight batteries and a good quality inverter can run a lot. And those batteries during the full duration of a day can be fully topped off by that little generator that sips gas and just uses very little gas while it's performing that charging function. So, And again, then that battery backup system can be in the home fully secured quiet. That's why I think if you're worried about that OPSEC, it's a much better approach than a great big, you know, 14k generator with you know running off, uh, ga- you know, natural gas sitting outside the home. That's a great solution. Uh, it's probably an optimal solution because two, three, four weeks, you know, with enough gas, you can basically go on about your business like nothing's wrong. Uh, that'll run most households in America, right up to running your heat uh, or your air conditioning. You might have to curb back a little bit, but you'd be in pretty good shape there. But it is noisy. So if you're worried about the noise, small generator coupled with battery backup, that's a way to kind of stretch things uh, a lot further. Let's go ahead and take another call.
2: Hey, Jack. Jason from Pennsylvania here. I've got a small field next to my house um, that I'm wanting to turn into a garden, probably about a tenth to a quarter of an acre, Um now you mentioned against you know you've uh, about plowing uh, but my thing is it's all grass right now so do I don't I need to at least plow to turn that grass over I don't have the money to bring in dirt um, to you know put topsoil above the grass so is plowing the best thing I could do for the first year of gardening anyways uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it.
1: Well, let me just say, if you went out and plowed it the first year, I wouldn't care. Uh, I don't think it's really necessary, but I wouldn't care. Um, I also want to tell you that a tenth of an acre to a quarter of an acre to a half of an acre, all that kind of stuff in that range, that seems small. It ain't small for guard. It's absolutely huge, and I don't think you're going to get close uh, in your first year to, uh, to utilizing that space. So start thinking in smaller uh, blocks of it. What you may want to do is go to Home Depot or Lowe's or Tractor Supply or someone that rents equipment, uh, local equipment rental shop, and get what's called a sod cutter. Uh, so it's not about cu- turning the sod under, but c- basically cutting it as though you were going to cut it up and use it like people lay sod for new lawns. Uh, and just remove that top layer of sod. And that's probably going to make your life a hell of a lot easier because uh, if you plow it you 're still plowing that in there 's a lot of the root system of the grass left, and uh, you know even tilling you 're going to have issues with that and that you 've got all that green uh, green uh, plant uh, material and while it 's good long term short term it 's going to be quite hot in its breakdown process you 're going to get some clay action as well and it 's not going to be optimum for initially uh, a growing stuff so like a classic Technique to deal with this would be a double dig technique where you cut out the size of your bed you want to establish and you remove your sod. And then you dig really, really deep and you put your dirt off to one side. You turn your sod over, put it in the bottom and, and cover it and put that grass down there, you know, down eight to eight inches to a foot down. And then you're going to have very little issues with that. It will break down. It will feed the soil. That's a way you could do it as well. So I'm okay with the turning of the soil and all that stuff the first year. When I get it, when I get on people and say, don't plow, don't till, it's more about every year. See what happens when you do that? You get a huge nutrient, nitrogen, oxygen, all that good stuff release into the soil. It's like a huge booster shot. And your plants do great, but you've vastly depleted. You've taken out much faster than you're replacing. And then the second year, not so much. And then by the third year, your soil's kind of really needing a lot of organic matter and a lot of help. Uh, and a lot of you know fertilizer, be it organic or, or conventional. And I'm not big on the conventional, but it's one way you could remedy it, right? So to avoid that, what we do is we allow the soil to stratify in its layers, and we allow the little creatures that are down there. Every time we plow that soil up and we turn it over, we change the layers and all the little animals and little creatures down there, all that life that's found its little niche, you've ruined it, you've killed it, you've, you've set it back. So the first time I get, it's the the constant. So one way would be with, with a soil buster. Another way, uh, you're talking about not bringing dirt in. Well, you don't have to bring dirt in. One way you could do it is just throw down some compost. And kill the grass in that area by depriving it of light. Get you, I know Paul Wheaton said not to use newspaper and cardboard. And that's Paul Wheaton's opinion, right? Jack Spearco's opinion is use what works for you in your area. And I know way too many people that have taken that kind of lasagna approach and done it successfully to say we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater there. Uh, So some old refrigerator boxes laid down in the area and covered with mulch. And then your first year gardening, you're not going to do a lot with seeds anyway. You're going to do a lot more with, you know, buying plants and planting them uh, cut a little hole in the cardboard stick it through plant it down into the ground dig that just one area out with your trowel and plant and by the time you get to the end of that year you pull that mulch back that cardboard's going to be gone and you're not going to recognize the soil that's under there it's going to look like fertile beautiful farm soil actually it's going to look more like forest soil which is exactly what you want so that would be another way Uh, but yeah you could come in there and plow it I, I don't hate the plow I hate the concept of constantly season after season after season after season after season, turning that soil and never letting an ecosystem establish itself in that soil. You're basically converting ecosystems. You're going from a monocultured lawn, right to a polycultured agriculture system. And you need to change that. So if you have to take some drastic measures to get the initial change, fine. right? But with, with grass? With heavy grass, established grass, newspaper and mulch ain't going to cut it. It will get through, it will grow, and eventually it will be stronger and rougher than ever. You're going to have to either remove it with something like a sod cutter, or you have to use something substantial like, let's say, two to four inches of mulch on top of a good thick gauge cardboard. And the cardboard will break down if you water it. It will break down in a season. Um, and the longer you're there, the more it will break down, and you'll get water conservation and all, and um, things like Paul described on the show I had him on, where he talked about this lady at a tree, she was literally um, killing with drought, even in the middle of the Pacific Northwest, because there were layers and layers and layers of newspaper that had basically laminated together and become a shield, and were shielding the water, and even though they'd been underground for years in a moist environment, when you, you could still read the newsprint, that can happen, but you do what I just described, it's not gonna happen. So you're either looking at cardboard and mulch, manually cutting the sod out, or a double dig technique, uh, or a sod cutter. And the easiest one's gonna be a sod cutter. And very inexpensive to rent, you know, a few dollars a day basically. One day you could cut all the sod you need, you don't even have to worry about rolling it up, just Mark your beds with some string and cut it. And you know, uh, it doesn't have to be raised. When I say beds, they don't have to be raised beds. My entire time of gardening with my grandfather, we had beds, but they were never raised. We just cut the sod and and planted down into the earth. So it's up to you whether you want to raise them up or not. There's advantages and disadvantages to both techniques. Great question. Let's go ahead and take another one.
6: Hi, Jack. Um, I live in Florida and wanted to share some uh, a product that I recently found that I'm really excited about um, because I'm a busy person like a lot of uh, the preppers. And uh, I love to garden, and I listen to your show all the time and am really excited to garden, especially this week was all about seeds and planting and have been getting excited but um, just don't have the time. And I found this product. It's called Earthbox e a r t h b o x i'm pretty sure you can just google it uh, and find the product but it's it's basically uh, similar to like a rubber made container that has some uh, special features that allows you to uh, use an automatic watering system to grow things uh ranging. They grow corn in them, uh, tomatoes, every kind of vegetable, or herbs you can think of. So just wanted to share that with you. Um, I am sharing it with my family. I think it's it's an awesome way to be self reliant and to grow your own food. So hope you uh check it out and uh thank you for everything you do on the show.
1: Well, I, I looked them up online, and they seem like a pretty well-built little product. I My my concern with any product for gardening that's based on, like, Rubbermaid-style plastic is what is that plastic actually made of, and I'm less concerned. I know there's people that are, like, health freaks out there. Some portion of the plastic is going to end up in the root and poison my family. You know, maybe. I mean, there's. I, I definitely wouldn't want to use BPA plastic or anything like that uh, in, in gardening, but... Uh, uh, that's not my bigger concern. My concern is longevity. I have seen so many buckets and tubs and things like that, when exposed to UV light for long periods of time, fade out uh, and eventually become brittle and crack. So it's only time that will tell how durable these things are. And I think that you know, based on where you are and your your intensity of your your your, your sunlight. Uh, you're going to see drastic, drastic differences. You might do very well in Pennsylvania with something made out of plastic, and you use it in Texas, and in one season it's destroyed. And I mean, I even see differences in the wear uh, of, of wood and uh, wood finishes for like decking between here in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And it doesn't seem that much different, but it has to do with the solar angle. Uh, based on your latitudes as well, not just the overall heat in uh, you know intensity and hours of sunlight and things like that, it also has to do with how dry your environment is versus how wet your environment is and things like that so that 's my, my my one concern is the longevity of the product and it 's and the reason I bring it up is because I know the first thing a lot of people are going to do when they look at the earth box they 're going to go, "Well, hell, I could build that for for a fraction of the cost, yeah, but out of what." See, that's the, other, that, that's the other side of it. If this stuff is built out of a really good material that can handle long-term UV exposure, and you go build one out of some uh, rubber made stuff you pick up at, at Target or Walmart or something like that, um, you may have been way better off investing in the product that's purpose-built. But since I don't know what it's built out of yet, I don't know that. If anybody's been using this product, including the collar, you comment for me as well, for more than one season, if you've gotten two or three seasons out of this, I'd like to know the condition of the product, but the concept is great. And i also say that it's just basically another form of container gardening. And if you're going to do container gardening, you could just take good quality ceramic pots or terracotta pots or something like that, arrange them on your patio porch or backyard, and very easily run drip irrigation to them, Uh, run that back to a hose bib with a timer, and that would effectively do the same thing. And I've gotten to a point where... I will no longer buy any cheap pot. Every cheap pot we've ever pur- purchased has succumbed to fade, cracking, and things like that. So we're buying, when we do our containers, high quality and generally ceramic terracotta, things like that, we're staying away from the plastics. And uh, we get more longevity out of those. So you can use that type of containers and because the, the problem you're addressing is, is very easy to understand. Gardening, especially not permaculture and perennials, but annual gardening, tomatoes, peppers, beans, all this stuff that people love to grow and love to eat all through the summer out of their garden takes time and there's weeding and when we go to a container we mitigate the heck out of that we get great soil we dump it in out of a bag we plant into it we're good to go we can use that pot season after season by adding some organic fertilizer weeding's a snap if there's any to worry about at all mulching's easy planting's easy it's right out the door it's great zone one uh, planting honestly it is permaculture in a way um, but the the issue then becomes, how to make sure it gets watered. So automatic timers drip irrigation would accomplish the same thing. But I like kind of the self-contained nature of this earth box. Again, please don't email me and go, well, I bought it last year and it still works. Okay, that's fine. I want to know someone that's taken it through two full seasons or more, and I'd love to see pictures of it after that. And I'd also love to know what part of the country that you're from. So if I hear, like, these things are shot in two years... But the guy that's telling me that is in, El, you know, is in San Antonio, and then I got somebody telling me the exact opposite that's in St. Louis, Missouri. I'll understand where the discrepancy is so if you've used this product for more than two years and you have an opinion on it let us know and let us I know some of you got this OPSEC stuff right Uh, but let us know the general area if you tell me you're Tom from San Antonio that doesn't really give away your position very much and uh, you could even be from Kerrville or something like that and give us the general area of San Antonio if you know what I'm saying and with that I think we are going to wrap up again today all great questions Uh, when you call in your question this is the way to do it be specific get to the the point. Do it fast again. Don't call me from the back of a ninja motorcycle. Don't call me running a chainsaw or a weed eater. And don't turn your head away from the phone don't move the It's only a two-minute call-out maximum, right? So you can do this for two minutes for me, folks. Because there's a lot of you guys, I do what I can. I, you know, cut pieces of your call-out. I put different volume levels in them. I'm doing what I can with level later to make, hopefully today's show again, I'm going to run this through level later, so hopefully the levels are better for you. But when I have a person whose voice goes way up and then way down and then way up and then way down on the same call over 60 seconds, that's hard to correct. So, again, holding the phone in the same position, speaking loudly. Pretend you're standing in front of a classroom teaching a bunch of kids and you want the kid in the back to hear you. If your call is too loud, that's easy to fix. If It's too quiet. It can only do so much. Uh, with that, though, we will go ahead and wrap up today. Remember, if you want to be on a call or a show like this with a call, dial 866-65-THINK. That's 866-65-THINK. Leave me your message. I'll try to get you on the air within about two weeks. Thanks again folks, have a great day and with that this has been Jack Spierco, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
0: Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do.